Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This evening we're going to be in 1 Kings 9. And the last time we looked at the most important part of the dedicating of the temple, which was to pray for God to reside in it and to always, always be with the children of Israel. And today, we're going to look at the conditional promises to Solomon and Israel, but we're going to see the subtle groundwork that was being laid for moving away from God. And I'm going to pick that up again in the closing. Um, Second Chronicles chapter 7 and 8 are parallel scriptures. So I'm not going to keep going back and forth, but just for your reference, if you'd like to do it on your own, uh, I am going to read a portion of Second Chronicles 7, but that's where we're at. So we're going to start with verse 1. And it came to pass, when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord, and the king's house, and all Solomon's desire, which he wanted to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time, as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. I have sanctified this house which you have built to put my name there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually now if, conditional statement, if you walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded you. And if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then... I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But if you or your sons at all turn from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, and this house which I have sanctified for my name I will cast out of my sight. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among all peoples. So this, is, this was fulfilled, what happened to the temple, to amazing accuracy. And this house will be exalted, yet everyone who passes by it will be astonished and will hiss and say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to his house, to this house? And they will answer, because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have embraced other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this calamity on them. So this is a reiteration of the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God made with David. And I'm also going to turn, again, this is the one part I'm going to turn to Second Chronicles 7, 13 through 15. And it's actually very... A lot of people use this. Um, it's been quoted many times, but it comes from here, obviously, in this portion of Scripture. God says, When I shut up heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then... I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. Some people have this idea that 
the Father in the Old Testament was different than the Son in the New Testament. Not so. As we actually go through the Scripture, we see striking similarities. If you read the Old and the New Testament, you can see these parallels, you know, these themes, so to speak. Um, so there's a, a contextual issue to God's people, but there's also themes that carry out into the New Testament of repentance. Luke 17 speaks about repentance. Repentance preceding forgiveness. So Solomon was done with the palace and the temple, and after God resides in the temple, he appears to Solomon a second time. So we saw this in 1 Kings 3.5, where Solomon appeared, or excuse me, God appeared to Solomon at Gibeon. Right? Now, again, confirming God's end of the bargain, if the king and the children of Israel would be obedient. I, I, some of these words I'm going to just express, I'm going to explain, because sometimes we, we mow through the Bible just to kind of read it, but we really have to let it sink in. How do you feel if I told you you need to obey this, or obey what I say because what I'm saying is based on Scripture? In our culture, we're resistant naturally, and more and more as we continue, we become even more resistant to authority. Teachers, police, uh, politicians, clergy. In our society, it's, it's people are moving more towards anarchy. But that's the funny thing because it's hypocritical. Because if we move completely towards anarchy, our little Apple devices and our computers and stuff doesn't work because the infrastructure is gone. It's really demonic if you think about it. I have, listen, I have no problem with obeying what God's Word says. Does it cramp my lifestyle as the pastor? I'm going to say yes. There's things that I want to do, and then God's word convicts me. So obedience is a word we don't like, but it's necessary. And it's not because God's being mean. It's because he cares for us. He's trying to help us to, 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 to live a, a life. You know, he designed us, and he knows what's best for us. What's a covenant? We hear about covenants all the time. Again, I teach the Bible a lot, and I just throw these words out. I feel like I need to explain it. I actually went to the dictionary. Covenant first. A binding agreement, a compact. I like the second one. A condition in a contract such as a deed or lease, non-performance or violation of which gives rise to cause of action for breach or dissolution. Three, a contract. Again, in the Old Testament, right? And, and this is what I love when I uh, witness to Jewish people because when I talk to them, sometimes they say to me, "Why well, I never knew that. I never learned that. I was never taught that. So even in the New Testament, the covenant idea has morphed and been refined and has been perfected into a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. I love finding the similarities in the Old and the New Testaments. So, one of the problems today is that, again, this is conditional, folks. Some promises that God made were just stated fact because of His goodness. There were other things where he said, you have a responsibility in this covenant or this relationship. And I think a problem today is that people just want God to bless them. They just want God to answer them, and they get mad when, they, when he doesn't. They don't think that they have a responsibility. And that's reflected in, in, quite frankly, garbage teaching that's called Christianity. It's a one-way relationship, and that's not what God has designed. I always say this, listen, we're ripping God off if we just give him religion. 
I'm going to do this, do that, do this. Here you go, God. You're going to like it because it's religion. I'm being religious. But the heart's not there. You see what I'm saying? It's kind of hard not to do the right thing by God, put nothing into the relationship, and then have high expectations. That's American culture. I'm a little, I'm a little on fire because, you know, um, I just came from the pastor's conference yesterday, and this morning I did a funeral, so uh, my, my emotions all, are all over the place. But even at the pastor's conference, I could tell the difference between speakers who wanted to make the pastors laugh to get um, to be like liked, and the other speakers who just gave it and didn't care if they were liked, didn't care about throwing a bunch of jokes in it, but it was something that we as the pastors needed to hear. Right? Again, it's reflective in our culture. High divorce rate, lack of, of marriages, high rate of singleness today. And that's great. Some people have the gift of singleness. But in some situations, people just can't hold relationships together. They can't hold agreements together. Gee, in New Jersey, it's like every third person you bump into is an attorney. Why? Because nobody can agree on anything and they can't keep their promises. This is American culture. It's why we have so many attorneys in this area. And they're all busy, right? This bleeds into ministry too. When people walk into a church and they have high expectations on the leaders and the servants, but they don't hold themselves to those high expectations. It's ridiculous. It doesn't work. The bottom line is this. God will avail himself, number one, to those seeking him, and also to those desiring to be used by him. This is whether Old Testament, New Testament, it's endemic through the scripture. God always keeps his promises. Unfortunately for us, he also keeps his promises to discipline us when we need it, to correct us, to use trials in our lives to grow us. Verse 4, he says, walk before me as your, your father David did. It's amazing when God looks at David. He sees a man, for the most part, over his life after God's own heart. What do we see when we think of David? Think about it. And we do as church people. We think of, oh, he's the guy that killed that guy and he's the adulterer. But God sees David as a man after his own heart. David repented of his sins. I'm so glad that God is judging me and not people because he's a fair God, right? But we see this continuum among, and this is like the cycle, obedience. Lack of obedience is sin. It's disobedience. And then there's discipline. And then hopefully on our part there's repentance. And then there's forgiveness. And then there's grace. And then there's restoration. And hopefully we go back to obedience again. But you may be here this evening and be somewhere on that continuum. But I want to encourage you. God is a, a merciful, He's a fair God. He wants to forgive. Right? But there's just some times that we've got to let the Word convict us. And we've got to repent and really try to change direction. Otherwise, we, we kind of hold up the process. So the ch children of Israel de dealt with the same things. The, the kings dealt with the same things. Let me read verse 7 again. He says, I will cut off, if, if they disobey, I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them and this house which I have sanctified for my name. I will cast out of my sight. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And that's exactly what happened. Zedekiah was the last king to serve uh, on the throne before the Babylonians came and it, it was a long siege. 
And in 586 B.C., the Babylonians came in, destroyed the temple, ruined the, the walls, left Jerusalem in ruins, and the children of Israel were mocked, just as God said. And people said, well, why did that happen? And there was a story that was told through the prophets and through the people who were really trying to be honest about the whole situation. See, because God won't be mocked. But if we continue in a disobedient path, times will be mocked. And we mock ourselves. Galatians 6-7 says, this is the New Testament. It says, don't be deceived. God will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will also reap. Verse 10. Now it happened at the end of 20 years when Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, Hiram the king of Tyre had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress and gold, as much as he des desired, that King Solomon then gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. Then Hiram went from Tyre to see the cities which Solomon gave him, but they did not please him. So he said, what kind of cities are these which you have given me, my brother? And he called them the land of Kabul, or good for nothing, as they are called to this day. Then Hiram sent gold, or sent the king 120 talents of gold. Now, in 14, some of the translations, it, it does appear at some point, it, did, it wasn't necessarily after this, because then it would really not make sense. Okay, and again, the Hebrew words, there's a little bit of a contextual or semantic range that you can, so you know what I'm saying there. Solomon basically He's, I'm going to go into this. He's, he's repaying the king, right? His neighboring king for the supplies. And he says, hey, I got a bunch of cities for you. That's how I'm going to pay you back. So Hiram goes, checks out the cities, and he's not happy with the cities. He's like, would you give me like the worst cities here? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I'm just paraphrasing in, in our vernacular. But Solomon had a different relationship with people than David did. I think that as we read this, David was more genuine. David was more, you, what you see is what you get type of guy. Solomon was a little bit of a wheeler and dealer. And, you know, you read the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm not trying to hurt the guy's character. He pretty much confesses in Ecclesiastes. And it's a long, depressing book that he speaks about his life. Um, he gets a little carried away with himself, you know? I mean, it's possible, too, that Solomon went a little overboard with his construction projects and they, they went over his head. We know that Solomon had these, these vanity-type projects and, and he had trouble paying for it all. In addition, where does it say in Scripture that you were allowed to give the cities of Israel away to somebody else? It doesn't. It's like he kind of used executive privilege, what we would think of in, you know, in the executive branch. He just did it, but he wasn't supposed to. 1 Chronicles 22. And when we go through these different scriptures, the talents and such, it's funny, if you look at different Bibles, depending on when, when they were written, it'll kind of give you a figure. So in, in verse 14, uh, my Bible says 691,200,000. And they do figure out talents by weight, and then they look at today's. But, you know, you could go on to you know, gold and silver prices right now on your computer, and then tomorrow they, they'll be different. So it's kind of hard to give you, to nail it down, especially if the Bible was written in 85 versus a newer or, or an older edition, gold changes, right, per ounce. So at one point it was a few hundred dollars an ounce, now it's like $1,200 an ounce. So suffice it to say, it was a lot of gold, all right? It was 
several hundred million dollars worth of gold. And in some cases, over a billion, if you're interested. <laughs> so um, in First Chronicles 22, David, uh, he, he collects all these materials, the wood, the gold, uh, the different products. And even though David wasn't allowed to build a temple, God told him he couldn't, it had to be his son, David was awesome. He says, okay, I'll just prepare it for my son. You know, and, and I'm shrewd, and I'll get everything together, and then when he's ready, he can use it, which was really neat. If you start looking at the gold and what was piled up before and what was used to build the temple, what you find out is that it seems like a lot more gold was needed, a lot more. And that's why Solomon got himself into a little bit of trouble here. Solomon had big eyes. Right? He, he, got, he got himself into, into a little bit of debt here. And he made this decision about get, giving up the cities, which was not good. I think there's a lot of good applications for us. You know, as Americans, sometimes we can have this the big eyes. We see things and our, the attitude is, well, I always want the best, the best, the best. You ever hear people say that? Does that come out of our mouth? Does it always have to be the best no matter what we buy? I want more. You know, it's like that slippery slope of compromise. We, it's almost like we elevate ourselves so we deserve the best. You know, I, I, God supplies all of our needs. He doesn't necessarily supply all of our wants. Verse 13, Kabul means sterile, worthless, or good for nothing. So Hiram was not at all happy with what Solomon was giving him. And again, look at David's dealing with his neighbors that were friendly, and look at Solomon's dealing with his neighbors. And I think that there's another lesson here is what are we teaching our kids? What am I teaching my son and how we deal with people? To be genuine or to wheel them and deal them? To try to bamboozle them so we can get a few extra bucks? You know, as a generation of believers in the church, are we raising our kids to be kids of integrity? And some of us might have come from families where our parents were a little shady or our grandparents and into stuff that they shouldn't have been into and hopefully we break that we break that generational curse so to speak how do we deal with others verse 15 and this is the reason for the labor force which king solomon raised to build the house of the lord his own house the milo the wall of jerusalem hazor megiddo and gezer pharaoh king of egypt had gone up and taken gezer and burned it with fire had killed the Canaanites who dwelt in the city and had given it as a dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. And Solomon built Gezer, Lower Beth Horon, Baalath, and Tadmor in the wilderness in the land of Judah. All the storage cities that Solomon had, cities for his chariots and cities for his cavalry, and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and, and in all the land of his dominion. So when you take these scriptures together, we see that Solomon did, and listen, some people, they're just not interested. I find it fascinating. Um, when I went into the temple and showed some slides, you know, building to me is fascinating. You know, how he did it, how they did things back in the day before the modern computers and hydraulics and stuff that we have. So I found it fascinating. But Solomon fortified and strengthened and kept military equipment along the trade routes of Israel's western side. So I should have put up a map. Um, you have Israel, and on the western side is the Mediterranean Sea. The lower left, or the, the southwest, is Egypt. Um, and the northwest is Lebanon. 
and you had Syria, and you had all these different areas. So what, what, what he did was, I mean, for a worldly guy, it was actually pretty smart. If you can protect your trade routes with the military, then it ensures the nation's wealth because people had to go through Israel, right? Verse 15, the Milo, um, that really comes from the word to fill. And what it seems to be is a, a, an earth or a stone embankment that was put up against the wall to buttress it, to give it extra stability and strength. Um, what's interesting is, <laughs> you know, I, I talk to a lot of people, and, and I just like to hear different things and such, but I, I'm fascinated, too, by our, our military and these young guys, gals who go to Iraq and, and Afghanistan. And I've talked to some people from, that have come back from Afghanistan, and it's fascinating. And we're talking thousands of years later that when the U.S. military shells you know, uh, al-Qaeda or terrorist compounds, they were finding that they were using equipment that could knock down buildings and penetrate steel and stuff. And, and they were finding that they still, the, the people were fine. It didn't affect them because they were using the same embankments. They were using earth, right, and stone, and our artillery wasn't penetrating it. So they had to develop, like, you know, bunker busters and special art projectiles that would go in, and then uh, there was a delay and then an explosion. So I actually found it fascinating how these people um, who, uh, let me just say this, from a, a haughty Westerner's outlook to say almost like they're primitive, but even with all our technology, they were able to defeat what we were doing, you know? So I find it fascinating. Um, thousands of years later, you still use enough depth of earth and stone, and it's really hard to penetrate. Verse 20. All the people who were left of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, who were not of the children of Israel, that is, their descendants, who were left in the land after them, whom the children of Israel had not been able to destroy completely. From these, Solomon raised forced labor as it is to this day. But of the children of Israel, Solomon made no forced laborers because they were men of war. And they were his servants, his officers, his captains, commanders of his chariots and his cavalry. So instead of dealing with the Canaanites on judgment terms, Solomon decides, well, I'll just use them for my labor force. Right? And we know what the Bible said about certain groups that were just so depraved. You know, you, you've got to go in there and you've got to conquer. You've got to wipe them out. Greeks and Romans did this too. They would conquer people and then let them teach their kids and be their servants and such. And what happened was that influence started to get into their culture. And it was, you know, they couldn't be conquered from the outside, but a lot of them were conquered from the inside. That's why God said, don't do it. They'll lead your, kill, your children and your families into idolatry. And this is, this is part of where it's going to happen, where you're going to go away from me, God said. And this is, you know, so many ways. I'll tell you what, even as Christians, there's so many ways that Satan will use to try to worm his way into our lives. The obvious ones will go, ha, 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 I was able to deal with that temptation. It was an obvious one. But he'll use other things to backdoor us. And that's what he does. He's very patient. Right? Whether you talk about the Old Testament or the New Testament, it's the same thing. Right? You compromise with the enemy. And some say, well, gee, I'll, it's, not, it's, it's harmless, it's, it's minor. Compromise, I can find something for that, that issue or that situation. I'll just keep, make sure it doesn't get out of control. Famous last words. Verse 23. 
Others were chiefs of the officials who were over Solomon's work, 550 who ruled over the people who did the work. But Pharaoh's daughter came up from the city of David to her house, which Solomon had built for her. Then he built the Milo. Now three times a year, Solomon offered burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar which he had built for the Lord. And he burnt incense with them on the altar that was before the Lord, so he finished the temple. King Solomon also built a fleet of ships. He built the navy at Ezean Geber, which is near Elath on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. Then Hiram sent his servants with the fleet, seamen who knew the sea, to work with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir and acquired 420 talents of gold from there and brought it to King Solomon. I guess we could look at this as miscellaneous historical information. Right? We could see it's obvious Solomon loved to build. He built a navy too. He built empires that costed huge amounts of money. And he was, even after his death, his son was even worse. You talk about how we raise our kids. You think he, I mean, I'm paraphrasing. He said to the people, you think my father was bad? I'm going to raise your taxes. My father was nothing compared to how I'm going to rule you. Such hubris, arrogance, and it caused a division in the kingdom. Right? right? For some people, it's just not enough. I have to tell you, um, Calvary Chapel, with the passing of Chuck Smith, is we're fine. <laughs> but there's a lot of Calvaries that are like, they're looking for the next leader, they're looking for the next guru. Um, follow the Lord, man. You know, everybody has a different idea of where to go. What does the Bible say? Be led by the Holy Spirit. It's kind of sad when this type of unchecked growth gets into the church. It gets into Calvaries too. It, it, it ceases to be about the Lord and then it becomes about feeding the machine. But to the carnal Christian mind, it's impressive. It's a scintillating experience. Listen, Solomon was a man of God and he didn't see his his thirst for more and bigger and better and, and, and you know, expansion. Again, we can see this. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. It was unchecked. Right? God is just as active in the small ministries as he is in the mega ministries, sometimes more. Listen, I love to, I just talked to the, remember, I know who, who, a month or so ago when Edomiah came, on the fields where ISIS is, where in Africa, on the front lines. Everybody loved him. I talked to him again. We're like buddies. I, I met him for the first time. And, and like we understand each other. But in, in the missions field, there's like miracles literally happening, incredible things in villages. We're like, oh, it's a, some remote village in the third world. That kind of arrogant attitude. I want something big. You know what? Too many Christians are looking for the big and the wows. And you know what? That, that really is a reflective of a carnal heart. I know people who have ministered in house churches in China, the persecuted church, underground, little villages, hiding. I know people who have ministered to little groups, few, a little family in Afghanistan. I love supporting those people because you know what? They're the real deal. When they come back, you see, it, you see that they're serious about the Lord these small ministries that God has them doing. Not thinking they're doing anything. But boy, it's incredible how it changes a person. A few points to, to ponder in closing. Number one, we see the subtle slipping of Solomon's dealings. Financially, his dealings with others. And again, then we have Ecclesiastes, which God allowed for a time. God is a God of grace, but he must eventually discipline. 
when we're in disobedience. Number two, Warren Wiersbe said on this, I love this, he said Solomon was more interested in prices than in value. Think about that for a moment. More interested in prices than in value. And three, we should prepare for trouble, we should prepare for hard times, we should prepare as we protect our families. However, sometimes when we try to completely insulate ourselves, we're not trusting in the Lord. David was a fearless warrior, protecting his country the best he could, but Solomon took it to, to, a, to the umpteenth level. You know what's amazing? When David was in command and he was obedient to God, he didn't need all the things Solomon had, but God still protected him. Remember when Gideon fought the 135,000 Midianites and he had 32,000 men? God said, it's too many, too big. Because you know what, Gideon, you're going to take the credit if you win. He whittled 32,000 down to 300 warriors against 135 Midianites. God was in the small numbers. He said, trust me, I'm paraphrasing. When you win, no one's going to think that you did it because it's impossible. The numbers, it's of attrition. They just don't add up. Sometimes when we build in too much insulation in our lives, what we're really saying is we don't trust God or we don't want to trust God or we're trusting in ourselves. I tell you what, it was, I, I, I did a funeral this morning and, and the family was literally rejoicing. They wanted to hear the gospel preached. And, uh, you know, it's funny, it wasn't in my notes and I, I changed my, my notes each time I do a funeral. I'm like, oh, that was good. The Holy Spirit gave me that. I'm going to use that for the next time. But one of the things I said is, is we're working, we're running, we're, we're going all of our lives like those little hamsters on the treadmill. You know, going, 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 going. And then we're 60s, 70s, and 80s, and we look back and say, what the, what the heck did I do with my life? What was it all about? And it really got people's attention. I said, because the only distraction from running and going is here. Because we're faced with death this morning. Now we have to think about it. What's it all about? What did I really do with my life? What is it that God has for you? What small thing does God have for you? You know what? Do it and do it well. Do it with the power of the Holy Spirit. And one day, when you are in His presence, He's going to say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. We don't have to be like Solomon. Solomon built so much, and at the end of his life, he said, it's all vanity, it's worthless. Let me go back to my uh, initial statement about moving away from God. Like Solomon, much of life can be a distraction, and it could lay the groundwork for pulling us away from God. We should instead be content with whatever little God has given us, do it well, and not be always looking for more. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.